Welcome to the Alternative Data Podcast. Welcome to the Alternative Data Podcast, powered by Exabel. I'm Mark Fleming-Williams. In this episode, I speak to Cameron Brandt, Director of Research at EPFR. EPFR is a long-standing provider of fun flows data, and in our conversation, Cameron and I track its development from post-Soviet Eastern Europe in the 1990s onto the global stage today. On another note, thank you to those who attended our event in London last week. It was great to see representatives of various hedge funds, major investment management firms, and all data providers in the audience, including EPFR, in fact. As another date for the diary, I will be speaking at the HFM European Quant Summit on November the 17th. Details in the episode links. We're here to talk about EPFR. You've been at EPFR for a very long time. For those who are uninitiated, EPFR is uh, broadly, you could say it's a it's a fund flows uh, data provider. Would that be Would that be fair? Yep, it would. We uh, track the uh, flows and allocations data of a universe of mutual funds and ETFs that. Uh, uh, just of last week was up to 137,000 share classes encompassing 51.5 trillion in assets. My word, off the top of your head. Very good. <laughs> um, and uh, But let us, uh, I mean, so EPFR is one of those companies which is an alternative data provider today. It, it might class itself that amongst many things, but it is much older than alternative data. Um, right. So why don't we perhaps go back and kind of introduce the subject from there in terms of where EPFR comes from and, 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 and approach alternative data from there? Does that, does that make sense? That makes sense. Um, so I can give you a quick potted history of EPFR. Yes, and uh, so uh, we started life actually not as a data provider, but as a producer of newsletters covering the uh, financial markets that popped up uh, in the countries that had previously been behind the Iron Curtain. Um, as you can imagine, tying your fortunes to the uh, somewhat rackety progress of Russian markets was not a business model that uh, uh, left one very comfortable. So, but, I mean, fascinating. But so it was yeah. so EPFR standard for um, something. Yeah, emer- emerging portfolio fund research, but that was not its original name. We were Global Investor Publishing. Uh, was there a boom of interest in those in those countries immediately? After yes, uh, followed by some fairly spectacular busts in interest. <laughs> uh, as often when you have a first mover advantage, that advantage is eroded by more people moving into the space. Yeah. If there's something there, then everyone comes and joins. Um, what um, and what kind of news were you with? Were, were you were you circulating? You know, I mean, you know, very bread and butter stuff. So uh, all of which back then was sort of very new and novel. The um, price of bread and butter? <laughs> well, my more the price of sort of debut issues in stock markets, um, you know, the general health of companies that, that were listed, um, you know, and sort of growing uh, sophistication of the instruments they were using to suck in foreign capital yeah um okay cool so it started off as being a very well it probably was the kind of the sexy you know as the silicon valley of the day in a way because it was yeah. a sexy sexy place to be i'm sure um and so then how did it how did it evolve 
Well, um, you know, along the way, we brought on board um, uh, a fellow called Ian Wilson, who had developed a, a small but good database, uh, basically of emerging markets equity funds, and had started to, you know, e explore aggregating their flows and um, allocations data. Um, what we found a was that there was something there, uh, and b that it was very scalable, uh, and then c with the you know. The, the iterations in the late 90s with with uh, the Russian financial markets. Uh, as I said, we really needed a new business model. So we rotated our focus um, to this database, which Ian had started in 1995. Um, and that rapidly became the raison d'etre for EPFR. So the, the EPFR guys had a, guys and girls, had access to data on fund flows in the emerging markets? Where were they getting this data from? Well, the same way we have uh, gotten it all along, which is frankly handshake deals. Uh, we mm. go to the funds themselves or the fund administrators uh, and talk to them and get the direct feeds. So uh, historically, that's been sort of one of our um, marketing advantages that certainly our core data sets are as re reported. There's no sort of algorithms or estimates uh, going into the day by day, week by week, month by month calculations. So you're literally sending a sending an email to the to the fund manager every three months, saying, "What have you bought this quarter?" Well, we uh, basically we get reach an arrangement with them to set up a recurring data feed, so we don't actually need to go to them quarter to quarter. Okay, okay. And are you are you are you paying them for it? Nope, not at all. Handshake deal. And what's in it for them? Um, that, um, A, that they are in, embedded in a data set that is widely viewed, um, and that, um, you know, the information that we uh, aggregate and disseminate uh, is frequently stuff they, they want, want to know about, too. That presumably screws towards the companies which are more interested in being better known. For, so, for example, someone like a, a family office, perhaps, who doesn't want to be well known, will they won't they won't have any any motivation? Right. And so, I, our universe is pretty much all um, mutual funds, ETFs, and we do have uh, uh, about one point five trillion in hedge fund coverage. Uh, but we don't, you're right, we don't cover sovereign wealth funds, uh, separately managed accounts, pension funds, um, vehicles, which, as you say, don't have any real incentive uh, to go out and wave a flag. Fair enough. So this starts in the, you know, so long-term capital management has blown up in 1998. <laughs> yeah. And, um, and uh, so you've got to, you've got to diversify, you get into this business. So how is it, how has it developed over the years? Well, it's developed in two ways. One is the simple putting your foot in front of the other, which is that, uh, you know, and again, Ian Wilson gets the bulk of the credit for this, uh, going to more and more fund groups and saying, you know, here we are, here's what we do. Can uh, we hook you up? Um, so, you know, when Ian first joined us, we were tracking, I would say, somewhere around 1,500 share classes with probably under you know 10 20 billion in AUM so we've come a long way since then and 
obviously a you know certain critical mass um, starts to develop uh, you know, somewhere around 2007 really got to be known uh, so it got easier and easier uh, but then in 2010 we were acquired by Informa finan- uh, a big information uh, company based in London and Switzerland um, and that obviously opened up uh, some some capital and some management expertise that <laughs> we had been conspicuously struggling uh, with prior to our acquisition. So at that point, uh, the acceleration of coverage uh, move, moved through the gears. Uh, you know, we, we've more more than doubled. You know, I would say actually we've tripled our coverage since Inform acquired us. Amazing. And do you do you talk? Can you talk in terms of, or do you talk in terms of, kind of percentage of the market covered? Yeah. Uh, you know, the metric we're most commonly asked is, you know, what percentage of the available universe uh, of, of of mutual funds and ETFs does your database cover? Uh, there is sort of sort of a a country to country variable. You know, it runs from over. 95% uh, in in the U of all U.S. domiciled uh, funds are in our database, and we have sort of 90s or high 80s uh, for you know for Japan and uh, a number of European markets, um, and and then there you know there are some some smaller markets where the, where the coverage is down closer to you know the 40 60% range. Mm, okay. And um, how regular is the is the data? So the data uh, comes out uh, it has has a daily, uh, weekly, and monthly frequency. Uh, probably the bread and butter frequency is daily, which is delivered on T plus one. So the reporting period is Thursday to Wednesday, with the data coming out uh, around five p.m. Eastern time uh, on the Thursday. Uh, daily data is T plus one, uh, and uh, we have a cut of that that's sort of developed on a rolling basis, which is actually <laughs> makes it possible to uh, trade on yesterday's flow data. So you get, uh, and it's a, a sort of a cascading percentage. The most comprehensive uh, coverage is monthly, but that has the biggest lag. It's a, we've got it down to about T plus 15 now. Mm-hmm. Uh, but as I said, weekly, which encompasses about 75% of the assets that report monthly uh, is T plus one and daily, which you know is probably down around 70% uh, of the assets that report monthly is also T plus one. Okay. And who was buying your data 20 years ago and how, how has that changed today? Yeah, good. that's, a, that's a, you know, definitely a question worth asking. Um, 20 years ago, we were basically selling to the, to the usual suspects, to the, uh, the fund management groups, the investment banks, uh, some commercial banks, um, you know, a few, a few family offices. Um, but so very, very much sort of private sector um, and, and uh, companies that were were in the game. 
And what were they using it for? Just just for market intelligence to know what everyone else was doing? Yes. I mean, it was primar- primarily back then, there were two sort of, I would say, core uses. One was uh, to identify inflection points and sort of measure their intensity. Uh, and then uh, on, on the quantitative side, um, it certainly fueled a number of basic um, of flow momentum models. Um, okay. And so bringing it forward a bit. Yep. So bring it forward a bit. Uh, obviously, uh, 2008, 2009 changed a lot. Uh, and uh, while perversely, it was pretty good for us because, of course, in crisis like that, everyone wanted to know sort of what broadly was happening uh, sort of with mutual fund flows. We found that our customer base now um, was sort of split somewhat along the lines, I would say, sort of 55%, the usual suspects, the the investment banks, the fund management complexes, but that uh, multilateral agencies like the IMF and World Bank uh, accounted for a growing uh, share, and so did the regulators. So, you know, all of a sudden, um, we had, uh, in fact, we have all of what you would regard as the major central banks now as clients and, and, and sort of the, the SEC here in the US, uh, the comparable regulators in the UK. This is this is probably reflecting the increasing size of your coverage, I suspect, because because when we're talking about fund flows, then it starts getting very quite political in terms of the effects these flows are going to have when they leave. Well, for example, the Asian financial crisis going back to the Mm -hmm. 90s, you know, that was all about money, uh, investment money pumping into into Asia in the in the boom and then suddenly disappearing in the bust. And so then the then from a central bank's perspective, you need to be very aware of that. Yeah. Um, So at the risk of sounding like I'm plugging us, I, I, I that's what you're here for. Yeah, right. No, I I think the reason that we have got this penetration uh, with people who aren't sort of using us day to day on a trading basis is that um, mutual funds. One of their characteristics is that their their sort of general structure, operating principle, and regulatory framework uh, is very consistent over time and even over geography. Uh, even though, you know, a, a, a Russian mutual fund carries considerably more risk uh, for for sort of uh, political reasons than a U.S. one. Uh, I mean, the structure is the same, and at least on paper, the oper- so are the operating principles. So um, there's a, sort of a, a purity to the data over time, even though it is only a slice of the. Uh, portfolio capital universe uh, that makes it, it easy to do you know strong comparisons over geography and time but in terms of in terms of if I was if I did want to understand how uh, how financial conditions were in Indonesia right now could mm-hmm. I use your funds data to see where how much money is flowing in and how much money is flowing out or is that is it not really for for that yes you know i mean it what you could get uh, from our our data is um you could get the sentiment of, of investors or the segment who express that sentiment through mutual fund towards indonesia uh, are they putting money in indonesian funds or taking it out 
you can get the perspective from the fund managers. You know, are they increasing allocations to Indonesia? Uh, are they are they pulling back from it? Uh, and and you can get a a good sense of its relative relative enthusiasm for Indonesia. You know, sometimes money's coming out of Indonesia, but it's it, uh, and Indonesian funds, but it's driven by the fact that the sentiment towards the whole region uh, has taken a turn for the worse. Uh, and then, sort of understanding it requires a sense of sort of, you know, relative distaste rather than absolute. So, you know, if only five percent of the AUM. Uh, <laughs> leaves Indonesian funds during a period when funds dedicated to surrounding air nations like uh, Thailand or Taiwan um, or Korea are seeing closer to 10%. You know, that tells a more nuanced story than just saying, oh, money going out. So EPFR have been doing this. Uh, the, the the clients have changed, but the, but the, the job has remained largely the same um, for... For twenty odd years, and um, in that time, um, obviously, alternative data was born, um, you know, in, in various shapes and sizes. But the phrase suddenly arrives in twenty fifteen. Yeah. So, EPFR is one of those one of those um, companies which has been doing this for a very long time, and suddenly discovers it has a name for what it does. Yes. <laughs> um, but uh, and so has have you seen in the last I don't know five ten years? Have you seen more? more hedge fund interest? Would you put yourself in the alternative data class alongside the classic kind of, I don't know, counting cars and and, um, and credit card transaction data? Have you seen people trying to use your data to understand, to gain insights on, 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 on the market? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> um, in a nutshell, yes, of course. Um, but no, certainly, you know, buy side quant hedge funds have, have, um, made up a, a much bigger share of, of what I've been calling the usual suspect uh, part of our client base. Uh, and it's certainly because they now have a, you know, in-house teams uh, who know how to use the analytical tools to sort of utilize our data in an alternative sense. Um, you know, what I say about our data, because we have been, as you rightly pointed out, sort of... Uh, doing something similar uh though you know more and more granularly as we progress but you know our, our bread and butter is, is very much the same as when we set out that um you know there is a spectrum of alternative data um uh, and ours sort of sits on the conservative end of this of the spectrum uh it's certainly alternative data by the definition that you know it's not immediately available um and that you know uh, if we and now some of our competitors didn't uh you know pull this data together you know it wouldn't really be available in in a usable uh form uh but it's also you know partly i think because of our success in in getting it out there um you know it it is you know, certainly not proprietary in the sense there are quite a few people using it. Um, so, uh, you know, we we do see ourselves as alternative data, but it's, uh, um, you know, we're a, a conservative <laughs> part of that spectrum. 
there is the, do you have sexier packages you know do you have parts which are only available for the for the most discerning customer or anything like that no we don't do that um but what we do do is we now um and it's sort of a recognition of really of that 2015 point uh we had uh, quants now make up the biggest part of our 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 internal research team uh and a big part of their job is to uh, take take uh, requests or expression of interest from uh, you know, clients and prospects who are interested in the alternative data angles um, and, and, and develop proof of concepts, you know, very basic models for them uh, to, to basically A, show them that they're on the right track and B, give them sort of a, a few angles to approach. Do you feel, um, so for example, right now, there's a lot of interest in retail investors and where they're focusing and the chatter on the, on the Reddit notice boards and stuff. So you can, you can try and understand, try and get ahead. I mean, mutual funds tend to obviously move a little bit more slowly and a little bit more predictably. So you're probably going to be less of a surge. But do you think potentially someone being creative with your data might be able to uh, to to kind of gain an edge in terms of understanding where things are going before anyone else does. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, as a matter of fact, that what before the alternative data intruded on the conversation as much as it has, you know, we were, you know, we have certainly for over fifteen years been filtering the the basic flows and allocations data. Um, according to whether it's going into retail or institutional share classes. You know, as you say, the retail investors who tend to utilize mutual funds uh, tend not to be kind of the edgy ones who uh, try and short silver over the weekend or um, load up on meme stocks before breakfast. But um, retail versus institutional has been a long-running theme, certainly in terms of the utilization uh, of our, our data. You know, I will say that uh, way before what we saw last year and this year, uh, many of our institutional clients regarded as a, a screaming contrarian signal when retail invest interest in, in certain areas and fund groups starts to pick up. The fact that you're, um, I, I, and I may have picked up wrong, but it, I feel like you're mentioning perhaps quantitative funds more than discretionary hedge funds. Would that be would that be fair? And if so, would that be fair? Well, as I said, hedge funds uh, currently, in terms of coverage, account for about one point five trillion of of fifty one point five trillion in overall coverage. Mm. Um, so. Uh, though we're getting our feet wet with um, uh, they're the tail rather than the dog at the moment in terms of you know how we sort of look at things very broadly. In terms of usage, sorry. In terms of in terms of the clientele. In terms of the clientele, yes, there's certainly a, grow, a growing part. Um, and but yes, more for them, it's more the uh, quantitative opportunities that they're interested. Whereas a lot of our traditional clients, in addition to getting signals out of the data, uh, the other use it that it has, and this is obviously not on sort of an alternative use, is that 
because pretty much anyone who's financially literate has at least some sense of mutual funds. So telling, uh, creating a narrative that's sort of pinned to uh, their flows and allocations date is very comprehensible. It's an easy to understand uh, framing uh, of issues or trends that they want to highlight. Okay. Um, is there, so what's, what's ahead? I mean, well, I mean, perhaps it's going to be, perhaps it's not up to you. Perhaps it's up to the, uh, which customers, which of the new customers to take an interest. Cause the, cause the, cause the, the product isn't changing. It's who buys it that's changing. So, um, so what's, what's, what's next? The Royal family or who's, <laughs> yeah. who's, the, next, who's the next people to take an interest? Right. No, no, you, uh, you, you phrased the question well, because certainly one of the things that is happening is that, those responses to individual, you know, queries from individual clients and prospects and the, and the use cases and work we do for them sort of informs the development, you know, where we go with the database. Um, I would say that, um, you know, if I had to sort of describe what's going on at the moment, it's that uh, we are. Um, constantly sort of evolving new lenses that uh, allow uh, allow you to sort of see the alternative qualities uh, you know inherent within the general database um, you know a very bre- simple one is <coughs> that we, we had uh, SRISG filters on our flows uh, well before sort of the rest of the industry Sorry, Cameron. SRISG? Oh, yes. It's sort of uh, socially responsible investing and and environment, social and governance. Yeah, very very hot. Um, So uh, we are investing a considerable amount of effort into sort of uh, improving the granularity of the existing data set, which continues to grow. So gr- expanding its size and depth uh, and the, the ability to mine it uh, in finer and finer trenches uh, would be my description of, of our general direction at the moment. Um, we periodically have discussions about sort of rad- radically altering focus, but, um, you know, uh, it never happens. <laughs> well, it the way way we've been doing it is instead is instead of kind of uh, uprooting our, our our core business, it has been to sort of take on carefully curated partnerships. Mm. Um, so, you know, for the moment, that strategy has worked well. Fantastic. Well, Cameron, I think we have um, we have explored the EPFR model for um, over its over its 25, 20 odd years. Um, so I think we've done it. We've 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 done our job. Um, <laughs> so um, so thanks so much for joining today. And um, and yeah, may come back in 20 years and tell me how it's going then. All right. I'll look Fantastic. forward to it. Thanks so much. Cheers. Bye-bye.